we are in our Christmas series, and it's called How to Survive Christmas. We're in week two of three. And you say, surviving Christmas, I didn't know that I needed to. Oh, yeah, you did. You knew that you needed to survive Christmas. You're thinking about it. Well, you say, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. I think it should be. And I think maybe at one time it was, and in pockets it might be. But, you know, unfortunately, this time of the year, the depression rates and the suicide rates skyrocket. They go through the roof. It's so sad. And not only that, we find ourselves getting stressed, and there's gifts that we have to buy. There's a financial strain. There's, there's parties that we have to go to, right? Parties start at the beginning of December, and they go all the way through. It's just busy. It's hectic, and we enjoy it. But yet at the end of the, the day, we're like, ooh, you can't wait till January. Then we have New Year's, right? And so it's like, oh, I can't wait till February. Then we have, you know, Valentine's Day. It just never stops. And what this does, it never does. They can invent new holidays for us to spend money. What this series is, though, it's not a war on what Christmas has become, not a war on consumerism. What it really is is just a journey to rediscover the true story of Christmas, the essence of Christmas, of what it, what it really means. I asked this question last week, and I'll ask it again. If someone were to sit you down and say, could you st- tell me the story of Christmas, where would you begin? Where would you begin? Well, these two people, you know, went and found a stable and had a baby, a reindeer, Santa, Ah, uh, snowmen, elf on the shelf. I mean, there, there are so many different launching points that you could, you could begin from, but could you really tell the story in a way that maybe, maybe just maybe, we've never really heard it or we haven't heard it in a long time. Last week, we took a look at this story through the eyes of Joseph in the book of Matthew and saw that Joseph was engaged to this young woman named Mary, and he finds out that she's pregnant, but he didn't help her get pregnant, right? And she says, don't worry about it, Joe. I didn't, I didn't do anything with anybody else. An angel appeared to me and, and told me I was pregnant. You know, And Joseph, he, he thinks about divorcing her, but he decides to stay with her. And we saw how, how God's plan for saving humanity begins with a premarital pregnancy the thought of, and the thought of divorce and a dream that Joseph had from an angel. That's how it began. And I said that if we're going to survive Christmas, what we have to do is realize that, that it, this is a time of generosity, not just financially, but a time of generosity for yourself that you will give of your time, your attention, and your affection because that's what God did at Christmas. He gave himself, the incarnation, right? God becoming flesh. And it's so important that we see Christmas for what it is because if there is no Christmas, then there is no Easter. It is incumbent upon us as Christians to be able to tell the story of Christmas, to rescue it, I should say, from everything that it has become, and return it to what the essence of it really is. Because if there is no Christmas, then there is no Easter. And what I want to do today is, I want to see the story, maybe through the lens of Mary, just a little bit. What was it like to be Mary? I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read verses 46 through 55. What we'll find here is that Mary, she has this song to the Lord. It's this song of praise and adoration, this song of worship. And what it is in response to is Mary has just encountered the angel Gabriel and he's given her some news. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, Mary, you are pregnant. And it says that Mary in the Bible, she's disturbed by this news. Why is she disturbed? And she tells the angel, hey, Gabe, I'm a virgin. I never done what it takes to get pregnant. How can I be pregnant? And Gabriel says, Mary, don't worry about it. You are. The Bible says in a cloud, right, like a glory cloud, came over Mary, and she was supernaturally impregnant. Immaculately, she conceived. And she responds, and what we're going to read, 
out of this encounter that she has with the angel. And I want you to listen to her words, okay? I want you to listen to her passion as we read this, and then we're going to talk a little bit. Why did she respond the way that she did? Because her response is not, you know, I think normal or necessarily indicative of what she just encountered. But here it says, In Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Yeah, do you hear the, pray, the, the passion in her voice? You hear or sense in her words that she's excited, that she is kind of overflowing or effervescing with, with adoration and praise towards God. And my question is why? What is the, the, the motivation for this? You're like, well, she just had an encounter with an angel. Yes, she did. But yet the angel told her that she's pregnant. And don't forget, she's pregnant out of wedlock. How excited would you be if you're engaged and an angel appears to you and says, hey, you're pregnant. And you're like, how did I get pregnant? I had never done anything to get pregnant. And the angel says, oh, don't worry about it. You're pregnant. God made you pregnant. See, we read this story and we're like, of course, God, immaculate conception. But have you ever sat back and thought about that? Here's a woman, a very young woman, goes to her husband, Joseph, I'm pregnant. I didn't do anything to become pregnant. An angel told me I was pregnant. Would you believe that? No. You're like, you can, it's okay, you're in church, you can say you would disagree and, and you know, be like, ah, I don't think so. What, what is this response? Where is it coming from? Well, there's, a, there's something that Gabriel told Mary that's pretty incredible. We'll find it in what Gabriel told Mary, but we really find it in what Mary said. But Gabriel told Mary this. We didn't read it. He said, Mary, you are blessed, you are favored, and you've been chosen by God to be the mother of Jesus. You're blessed, you're favored, and you've been chosen by God. And here's a key thing that we can't forget. At this time in Israel's history, they had not heard God speak to them for 400 years. There's this 400-year period between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years where God did not speak. There's no record of him speaking. And here is Mary. Who's Mary? It's important to know who Mary is. She's a young teenage girl who lives in, and she's poor. She has no status. She lives in some obscure hill town outside the city. They're underneath Roman occupation. Mary is a nobody. Mary is not anybody that you would choose to, to be the mother of, of the Savior of the world. And matter of fact, she's a teenager, and she's not, even, she's not even married yet. She's engaged to be married. This is who Mary is, right? So Mary, on the surface, she really has no reason to praise God. There's nothing going on in her life where she's like, hallelujah. And hearing that she's pregnant, that, I mean, tell me, if, some, if an angel told you you were pregnant, if you're a woman in here, how excited would you be? Unless you're just like praying for a baby. You're like, I ain't married. No, that doesn't inspire worship and praise. What, what we find out about Mary is this, is that she says it in verse 46 through 48. Here's what she says. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Here it is. For he has looked, everybody say looked, yes. on the humble estate of his servant. What's Mary saying? 
Why is she, she worshiping? What she's saying is, is that God sees me. For he has looked upon the humble estate. What's the humble estate? The obscurity, the lowliness, the nobodiness of who I am. The God of the universe, the divine, the one who hasn't spoken in 400 years, looked and he saw me. He said, I was favored. He said, I was blessed. He told me I was pregnant, blah, blah, blah. He saw me. You know, the fundamental need and desire of the human heart, the human soul, is to be seen. There's something about it, isn't it? To be seen, to be acknowledged, to, to, to be recognized, to be lifted out of obscurity. It validates who we are. It says that we're somebody. We long to be seen. And when Mary knows that she is seen by the God of the universe, she cannot help but praise. She cannot help but, but worship God. And she says, from this moment on, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Holy is his name. It's interesting because you really have to realize that a woman being pregnant out of wedlock in this culture, it was punishable by death. You say, well, that ain't fair. You're right. Regardless. She was pregnant out of wedlock. She could have been punished by death if Joseph would have pushed the issue. Mary's saying, they will call me blessed. She was looking forward to today, 2,000 years ago, when we say, wow, Mary was blessed. She carried Jesus. She was the mother of Jesus. But what Mary was doing by agreeing to be the mother of Jesus and accepting it was saying, I am accepting a difficult life. People will talk about me. People will hide in the corner and ridicule me. People will look at my character and say that I'm loose. I'm not chaste. I'm not holy. They won't believe that an angel impregnated me. They will ridicule me for the rest of my life. Not only that, Mary becomes the mother of Jesus. Jesus, right? And what happens is right after Jesus is born, the king at that time, Herod, was afraid that someone was going to overthrow his kingdom because he had heard, oh, a king is coming for Jerusalem, for Israel. That's going to overthrow the kingdom. So he put a mark on all newborn babies that were boys of the Hebrews. So what Mary and Joseph had to do as a young betrothed couple is escape. And they went to Egypt for four years. Jesus' life hung in the balance. There were no wise men at the stable. I'm sorry. They didn't come till after. Mary had to protect her baby. When Jesus got a little older, she would lose him at a huge event. And where does she find him? Sitting in the temple talking to people. And he says, where were you? And he says, mom, I was about my father's business. What are you talking about? We were looking for you. Don't worry, mom. It'll be all right. Jesus becomes 30 years old and he's, he's doing ministry and, and they're following him around and, and they try to get Jesus to, to pay attention to them. And she says, I'm your mother. And Jesus looks at her and says, who is my mother? She had this constant reminder that she was stewarding the son of God. She was his mother, but then she knew that well, the culmination of this is when she watched her son be tortured and beaten and die on a cross and there was nothing that she could do with, about it. She was his mother. See, Mary did not sign up for an easy life. This wasn't something that you would look at on the surface and say, oh, she should worship because she's going to birth Jesus. No, 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 no. Her life was about to get much more difficult, not easier. But yet she could say, from this moment on, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And thank you, God, for this opportunity. Why? Why? Because he looked at her, because he saw her, 
That's the fundamental need of the human heart to be seen. My son Carson is six. You know what I often hear from him? And if you have kids, grandparents, you see this. Here's what I hear. Daddy, look at me. Hey, hey, daddy, over here. Hey, daddy, watch. Hey, daddy, did you see me? Hey, daddy, hey, especially when I'm with other kids and I may be messing with them. Hey, daddy, do that to me. Hey, did you see what I did? Look how fast I am. Look how good I can draw. Look how, look how neat my, my Lego thing that I made is. Hey, I did so good on that video game, daddy. Did you see me? Why, why is he doing that? He, he wants me to see him, and more than that, he needs me to see him. He needs his dad, his daddy, to see him. And you know what? I'm 32 years old. He's six. I'll be 33 next month, and I'm telling you, I need to be seen. I want to be acknowledged. I want to be recognized, and you know what? You do too. That desire never goes away, ever, ever. There, there's this deep belief in us that, that in order to matter, we have to be seen, right? If I could just be seen. If that person would just recognize me, if my boss could see my contribution, if my wife, if my friend, if someone could just see me, then I would matter. And our culture perpetuates this. We have a celebrity culture, don't we? I mean, get this. You can be famous for just being on YouTube. Last year, a lady got on Good Morning America. Why? Because she put a Chewbacca mask on that made her voice sound weird. And and she got millions of hits. And then she was on Good Morning America. What did she do? Nothing. Nothing, but she became famous. She became famous. So we think that we need to do something great and be someone great so that we can be noticed. So we got, a, we got hundreds of thousands of people trying to be big on YouTube. That's why, so they will be noticed. See, our desire to be seen is evident and that we'll do almost anything to be seen. Let's take selfies, for example. All right, I'll just be honest, I hate selfies. You know why? Because selfies are pictures of ourselves that we send to people who already know what we look like. (laughs) And they're not real pictures. There are selfie hand guides. How to take good selfies. How to reduce your double chin. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that? Someone takes a selfie and their life looks perfect, but you're like, I know them. (laughs) And they ain't perfect. Why do we do this? We want to be seen. What do we want to get? We want to get a digital thumbs up. We want to get a a, a smiley face emoticon. We want to get a heart bursting with emotion. What we don't want to get is a digital thumbs down, a mean face, or a sad face. We could get 100 likes and 50 hearts and 75 smiley faces and one dislike, and we think, oh, oh, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? The other day, uh, last night actually, we did a Facebook Live here. We had the parade, and we got home to watch it. And my son was is part of it, and my wife was part of it. And Carson looks at the screen on Facebook and he goes, "Oh, mom, this is going to get so many views." He's six. He's six. This is the culture in which we live, where we're trying to be seen. Now, guess what? It's not wrong to want to be seen. In fact, it's the fundamental need of the human soul. What is our soul? Our mind, our will, and our emotions. We want to be seen. We need to be seen. But we live in a culture that is so predicated upon making certain people seen that we can begin to feel pretty bad about ourselves and in the grand scheme of things, pretty obscure and insignificant. How many of you work at a place where you've been told you're replaceable? You know, hey, if you don't do it, I'll find someone else and I'll pay them less where you go to work every day and you feel like you're just a cog in the machine and and your contribution doesn't really matter. 
You just want someone to notice you. See, we, we all ask this question, if we're honest with ourselves. Does anyone see me? And even deeper than that, does my life really matter? Do I really matter? We all ask that question. And here's, here's the, the reality is, is that the only person that can fulfill that desire in us is God. Our soul needs to be seen. And, that, and what we do is we try to fill that with people. We try to fill that with social media, with you know, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever it is, you, you name it. We try to fill it, and that doesn't fill us. That makes us worse. And then we say, okay, I need a friend. And the friend doesn't do it. Oh, I'll get married, and that person will see me and love me and fulfill me. And then you realize they don't because they can't. So if you're here this morning and you're mad that your spouse isn't fulfilling you, why don't you just look in the mirror because you're not fulfilling them either. And give yourself a break. You can't. You're incapable of fulfilling the deepest depths of who they are. Only God can do that. Only he can do that. And you know what's amazing? When you look at the song of Mary, her joy of being seen comes from the fact that God sees her as she is, not as who she wants to be. He says, he saw me in the humble estate of his servant. In her humble estate. Mary's poor. Mary's in obscurity. Mary has no status. Mary has never done anything that culture would say is great. Nobody knows her. But God saw her not for her looks, not for her status, not for her accomplishments, but for who she was. He saw her and he chose her. That's what she's amazed about. That's what brings forth this song of praise. That is what moves her soul and impacts her so much where she can't help but sing a song of praise and adoration to God. And when she says this, it's amazing. She says, and now all who fear him will know him from generation to generation. What she does is she connects to and understands the larger story of God, that what's happening in her right now is not just for her, but it's for everyone. And what we see is that the story of Christmas is all about God seeing us. That's good news. That he sees us as we are, not as we want to be, not as we portray ourselves to be, but as we are. That's who he sees, and that's who he wanted to come for. The story of Christmas says that God sees you. The answer to your question, does he see you and do you matter, is a resounding yes. And what we have is the story of Christmas. He sees you. You matter. You have value. You have worth. You have intrinsic value and worth. And that can only come as God of the universe would assign it to us. God said that we have value, not because of what we did for him or what we haven't done, but because he created us. He would tell David and Jeremiah that I formed you in the depths of the earth in your mother's womb, and I had a plan and a purpose for you. What does that tell us? That God is a creator, that God is a fabricator, that he is a hands-on kind of God, and he has, he has imparted value and worth into humanity. So much so that at the time of Jesus of the incarnation, of him becoming flesh. He said, I see humanity, and I want to become part of them. I want to be with them. I want to look them eye to eye and demonstrate for them and the entire world to see, I see you, and you matter. And not only that, I want to restore this relationship that was broken, not because of what I did, but because of what you did. I want to fix it. We can't fix it. He came to fix it. Have you ever been in a room with a lot of people and you were with them 
but you didn't really see them. You're there right now. (laughs) See, you guys are over here, and you guys are over here, and guess what? Every Sunday, it's the same. I can look to my left, say, yep, they sat there last week. I can look to my right, say, yep, you sat there last week. What would happen is if you came over here, it'd be like being in a new church. What happened is you would see people. See, one of the reasons why we want people to get into a small group in this church is because we want you to see each other. We want you to get in a circle. The church grows in circles, not in rows. We want you to look at somebody in the eye and get to know them. That's why James said, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Forgiveness is vertical. Healing is horizontal. Right? We want you to see each other. Why? Because that's the gospel. That's the message of Christmas. That's what Jesus did. God didn't just come to be with us. God came to be one of us, and he came to see us. And that is what has inspired Mary. He saw me, and all will call me blessed. No matter what I have to go through, no matter how difficult it gets, the God of the universe saw me, and he chose me, and he said I was favored, and he said I was blessed. And not only that, he has said it for every human being on the planet. God sees you. You're favored. You're blessed, and he's chosen you. And maybe you're like, well, he, <laughs> he didn't choose me to be the mother of Jesus. He didn't choose me to do something great. You're missing it. It's not what God chooses you to do that's important. It's the fact that he's chosen you. It's not what he's chosen you to do that is of supreme importance. It's the fact that he's chosen you. He sees you. What this teaches us about Christmas is that if we're going to survive Christmas, we realize that Christmas is a time for worship. It's a time for worship. Now, I think when I say that, what automatically happens is is it, it brings up the question, then what is worship? Is worship what we did a few moments ago? Is it the Sunday morning slot of 20 minutes at the front end of every service where we come and sing and and maybe raise our hands? Is that worship? No. That facilitates an aspect of worship. Worship is not music. Worship is is so much more than just that peace and time. I'm going to share with you this definition of worship that I came across. I thought it's amazing. Here's what worship is. Worship is the full life response, head, heart, and hands, to who God is and to what God has done. Worship is the full life response, head, heart, and hands to who God is and to what God has done. That's what worship is. It is holistic. It's all-encompassing. Here's what it's not. It's not emotional. What do you mean? I don't worship because I feel it. I don't worship when I feel good, when I get the goosies, right? When I get, when I get goosebumps, when oh, I felt the presence of the Lord. Yeah. No. I think it's wonderful to feel the presence of God, but you don't always feel it. But yet he says he's with us at all times. It's not circumstantial. I don't worship him when my circumstances are good. I don't worship him because things happen that I wanted to happen. It's not situational. I don't worship him when just the bills are paid and the marriage is good and I got the cars and the house and the vacation and all that good stuff. No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with any of that. That's all good stuff. That can be part of it, but it has no bearing on why we worship. It is not the foundation of our worship. It is not the impetus of our worship. See, worship is more than that. Worship is a response and a response to what? Who God is and what he's done. I worship him for who he is. 
what he did at Christmas, that he saw me, that he became part of this, this life and humanity. And he lived this life in front of me. And then at Easter, 33 years later, he gave his life for me. See, here's the thing. If God never does anything else for you, if he never pays that bill, if he never fixes that marriage, if he never heals that sickness, if he never brings that lost person back, he, he is still worthy of worship because he gave us the very best of heaven in Jesus. There is nothing greater than Jesus. And if you can't worship because of what he's done in Jesus, then I don't know what you have to worship about. Then what you will do, you'll worship one day because it's good, and you'll be mad and skip church because he's bad. And you'll get mad at the person next to you or with the worship pastor or me because you didn't like what I preached or whatever. Why? Because you're circumstantially, situationally, and emotionally trying to worship God when he says, look, I've spoken in finality like we talked last week in Jesus. And my worship is a response to who he is and what he's done. So what that teaches me is this. We never have an excuse not to worship. Even if I got to dig deep. Even if I got to come in here and I hate everything in my life, I can still worship. And guess the, the reality is it's not just what you do here on Sunday morning. That is just a peace and time where we can corporately worship. We can worship every day of the week. And it doesn't even have to be music. Because here's what worship is. It's our whole life. It's our heart, it's our head, and it's our hands. See, when, when you became a believer, there's something that started happening in your heart, didn't it? God started to deal with you. God started to reveal himself. It didn't make a lot of sense, but something was going on on the inside. And then you believed in God, and he gave you a new heart. That's what scripture says. He gave you a brand new heart. And you're like, wow, I feel different. I think different. And then he said this, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He started to transform your thoughts and how you think. And then what happened is it started to affect your hands and your hands started to go out and you started to serve people. You started to love people. And then they started to go up because you thought, man, God is so good. I can't help but worship. Why? Because he saw me and he saved me. He became in this life. He, he gave himself for me. It's our heart. It's our head. It's our hands. And God bridges this gap. You want to know the biggest gap to bridge in, in the earth today? The most cavernous gap? It's from here to here. That's the biggest gap to bridge. And only God can do it. And when he bridges that gap, you can't help but worship. You can't help but touch. You can't help but, but, but help people and serve people. That's worship. That's what Christmas is all about. It's this time for worship. You know, one of the things that God's been teaching me lately about worship is this. I, I get up in the mornings, and, and I'm not a morning person. I'm trying to become one. And uh, I mean, I really, I'm trying hard. <clears throat> and I've been sitting and reading my Bible and, and trying to pray a little bit. And what the Lord's been teaching me is to be quiet, which is hard because I'm not a quiet person. I talk more than my wife. I talk all the time. I want to be heard, not just seen. I want to be heard. Okay? <laughs> and this is why Sundays are great for me. I get to be seen and heard. For 35 to 40 minutes, uninterrupted. But anyway. <laughs> but I feel like the Lord's been telling me, here's, Josh, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to shut up. And I just want you to listen. I just want you to be quiet. I just want you to reflect and consider on who I am and what I've done. And you say, well, how do I know who he is and what he's done? You've got to be reading this. You've got to crack it open. 
Gotta read God's word. It's the purest revelation of who he is and what he's done. And it's not tied to your circumstances or your situations or your emotions because he is God. And despite what I think, despite what I feel, or despite what I see, he is who he says he is. He will do what he said he will do. And I am who he says I am. And reflect on that. And it's been amazing just to be quiet. I'm not raising my hands. I'm not crying. A lot of times I don't feel anything, but I know. But I know who he is.